war, politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown Back to the Future. This episode is entitled Secrets of the Psychics. Let's pray together before we begin. Father in heaven, as we uh, finish our series here, thank you that it's not the end, that we have the secrets of prophecy coming up so we can dig in deeper and understand more. But today we pray that you will bless us, you'll help us to understand, you'll guide us, so that we can be ready for the soon return of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, Amen. All right, what's the secrets of the psychics all about? You know, there have been some very powerful people who have consulted the psychics down through time. People like Alexander the Great consulted the oracle at Delphi. There's a special place in Delphi where the priestesses used to sit to tell people the future. Even some very famous president of the United States of America have consulted the psychics to try to find out what the future holds so they can make the right choices, they hope. Well, the psychics are in business today, of course, in a big way. Many people claiming to make predictions and some of these people are very famous, like Edgar Cayce, known as the sleeping prophet. Then we have Gene Dixon, who's said to have predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the suicide of Marilyn Monroe. Very amazing people. We have lots of them making big profits today, uh, including people like Sylvia Brown, who up to about $70 million worth of money out of the prediction business. Even Christians today are also involved in making predictions and prophecies. In fact, an uh, interesting article came out about the Christian prophets, if you like. Learn how to make a fortune as a religious con artist. This lucrative career has sustained countless scoundrels, frauds and hucksters for millennia. If you play the part right, you will be blessed with riches, power, prestige and sex. Now that was talking about Christian who are involved in the signs and wonders movement. And it's quite true. Many are like making a lot of money uh, out of this, even Christian people. Some of them have golf courses and you know what? All sorts of riches they've made out of this uh, thing we call a psychic. Jesus warned regarding prophecies way back in his time. I want you to notice the very clear warnings that he gave that ought to make us be very cautious in this area. False Christ and false prophets, he said, will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the very or even the elect. So Jesus gave a good warning here to each one of us that just because someone makes predictions doesn't make them one of God's prophets. He says they, many will deceive in the end of time. So we need to understand how to tell a true prophet from a false prophet. 
Jesus warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, he said, they are what? They are ravenous wolves. Now, when you stop and think about it, if Jesus is warning about false prophets, then you can expect that there's no doubt going to be genuine ones as well. So what we need to understand is how to tell the difference between the two. So let's notice what genuine prophecy in the end times is all about. How would we tell the true from the false? We go to a passage in the book of Ephesians. Paul is talking here, and I want you to notice what he says. Wherefore, he said, when he, that's Jesus, ascended up on high, when he went back to heaven, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts. Now, what were some of these gifts that he gave? He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So you notice one of the gifts that Jesus gave the Christian church was the gift of prophecy, among some other ones. We want to zero on today on that gift, the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is one of the God's very important gifts to the church. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you come short in no gift while you are eagerly awaiting, he's saying, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to expect that prophecy did not end with the Bible because he said you come short in no gift while you're waiting. So we shouldn't expect that the gift of prophecy ended with the Bible. And we're going to see that's exactly the case. It did not end with the Bible. Let's look at a prophet's work, first of all. Number one, the word prophet comes from a Greek word, well, two Greek words, prophet or prophetes. The word pro means for or on behalf of, and the word fetes means to speak. So a prophet is someone who speaks for someone. In other words, a messenger for someone is another way to put it. That's what prophecy means. It doesn't mean a predictor of the future, though prophets did that, but their work was bigger than that, as we're going to see. One who speaks, in this case, for God, God's spokesman. Now, let's look at the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is spelt out by Paul as we continue reading this passage. For the equipping of the saints... For the work of ministry, says God gave these gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man or person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What's all that about? Let's put them up, a number of them. What's the purpose of prophecy? Number one, it's to bring unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. Unity of both faith and unity of knowledge of Jesus. That's the first thing about a prophet. Number two, it's to bring us to what the Bible calls maturity or perfection. It means completeness, 
to bring us to completeness or maturity. Nobody likes to see a 40-year-old in nappies, right? We want the baby to grow up. <laughs> we want him to grow up, so that's what he means. To, to help us grow up in the Lord. Number three, to bring stability to our lives so that we're not shaken by this teaching and another teaching that comes along. We go this way and that way, but we are stable Christians. Number four, to make us Christ-like, to build us up, he said, into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Finally, to prepare us to serve others or to minister. That's what that word means, to serve. These are the purposes of prophecy, to help God's people in those things. Now, why would God send his prophets? What would be his purpose to send his prophets? Well, of course, because of his love for his people. Let me illustrate. You've no doubt heard of the story of King David. One day, David's there on the roof of his palace. His soldiers were at Amman. That's Jordan today, the city of Amman. You can visit the old walls of Amman um, from way back. And David's got his soldiers there. Normally he would have been with them, but he's back in Jerusalem. He's having an easy time while his soldiers are fighting. And he's on the roof of his palace and he looks out one day and he sees a woman taking a bath down in one of the houses down there. And he says, whoa, she's nice. So he finds out who she is finds out that he's, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his soldiers. So he calls her to his home and, of course, they sleep together and she sends a message a little while later. She says, David, uh, I'm pregnant. David says, whoa, now I've got a problem here. What am I going to do with my problem? So a little while goes by, just probably two or three weeks, and guess who shows up at the palace one day, come back for a little bit of rest and relaxation at least a break from the fight it's Uriah the Hittite and David calls him to the palace and he says so how's the battle going there always oh, says yeah we're having a pretty tough there at Amman and then he says well look you need some proper rest why don't you go home and spend some special time with your wife wants to cover up his own deed see but the man won't do it because he says how can I take this marital privileges when my fellow soldiers are on the front line fighting for their life and the life of the country. I won't do it, he says to David. Now David starts to get really worried. So he comes up with another idea. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll have a party. He, says, he invites him to the palace again the next night. And he gets the guy drunk, hoping that he'll then go and sleep with his wife. But he won't do it. So David he doesn't know, you know, he's really scared now because everyone's going to find out about what he's done eventually. So he writes a little letter. He says, Dear Joab, General Joab, who's the commanding officer on the front line, would you please mind putting Uriah the Hittite right up against the wall? You know, where the arrows fall the thickest and where they drop rocks on the heads of the people down below? Please, can you put him there? And then he folds it up and then he gives it to the man he doesn't know that he's carrying his own death warrant. And the guy takes the letter to the general like a good soldier who reads the letter and says, oh, David wants this guy killed. Right. OK. And you know what happened? He's killed because he puts him right up against the wall. And then David gets a message back which says, oh, by the way, that poor guy Uriah got killed. 
Now David thinks, wow, I covered that one up nice. No one will ever know that it really is my baby that this woman's carrying. Because they saw the husband come and let's hope they thought she went home and so on. Well, David would have gone on in his sin because while you and I have sin and we've done something wrong and we don't make it right, we are never at peace in our mind. You know the game, don't you? I sure know what it's like. You can never, you can never live with yourself properly. You're never comfortable while you're carrying a burden of guilt on you. So David is in danger of losing his eternal life. When suddenly one day he gets a visit to the palace from a prophet called Nathan. And Nathan says to David, he says, David, we've got this little problem in, in, uh, in our country. He said, let me tell you what happened. He said, there was this rich guy who owned scores of sheep and his neighbor was a very poor man. He only owned one sheep. That's all he had. And one day, David, the rich guy had some friends coming to his, uh, to his home and he thought, no, what a pest. I've got to kill a sheep now to feed these people, these friends of mine. So he thought, I don't want to do that. But he looked over the fence and he saw that one poor sheep that that poor man had and he stole it, David, and he killed it and he gave it to his friend so he wouldn't have to kill his own sheep. David almost jumped off up the throne and he said, well, let's kill that guy. He's a rascal. And the prophet looked at him straight in the eye and he said, David, you the man. This is a parable, David, about you. You stole that one man's wife. You stole her. You slept with her. You, and then you killed the guy, David. You are the man. Whoa. How do you think David felt? I'll tell you how he felt. He suddenly realized that God knew about his stuff. And you read in Psalm 51 how David was cut to the heart. He realized he had sinned greatly. And he confesses to God and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me. I have done terribly wrong. God, would you forgive me? And God forgave him. That's what prophets are about, my friend. Not just to come to you and say, You're a bad man. But David, I've come to tell you, you've done wrong, so you'll turn to God. So David, you'll have forgiveness and you'll have eternal life. What a gracious God, eh? How merciful is God to send that prophet to help a man who had clearly done wrong just to rescue him? Well, that's why God sends his prophets. So how does God communicate his messages to the prophets now? Well, there's a couple of ways that God reveals that. Number one, he sends them dreams and visions. They see things in the daytime. Sometimes they just see this panoramic view somewhere they're looking. They can see it in their head that God's given them. Or they dream at night time, a dream that God's given them. You remember we saw Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream by God. Same dream from God given to Daniel. Exactly the same. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, says God. That's one way God communicates his messages to his prophets. Dreams and visions. And you have lots of that in the Bible. Number two, another way is God impresses the mind. He puts a thought in their head, an idea in their head, or he, he whispers something in their ear about someone, about what they've done. That was probably the way it was with Nathan. Doesn't tell us how, but probably God just told him, hey, David's done a bad thing. You need to get on down there and help that guy <laughs> before he goes too far. 
please help my servant David. He impresses their minds. For prophecy never came by the will of man. They didn't cook this up themselves. But holy men of God, in other words, people who were in love with God, people who were walking with God, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit moved upon them and they were impressed. Now, let me tell you, not all, people, all prophets wrote scripture. There were many prophets who never wrote anything in this Bible. Have you heard of the book of John the Baptist? You won't find it in the Bible. You hear about John the Revelator and John the one who wrote the gospel. Now, that's not John the Baptist. But Jesus said the greatest of the prophets is John the Baptist, but he never wrote a book. Have you heard of the book of the prophet Nathan? Well, we don't have a, such a book. Maybe he wrote something there. We don't know, but we don't have it. What about the book of Abraham? He's called a prophet in the Bible, but we don't have the book of Abraham. How about the book of uh, the prophet Philip? Or let's say, let's try another one. The prophet, um, who's another one? The prophet Joseph. Ever read the book of Joseph? No, but he's a prophet. Made some predictions there for God to the Egyptians but never wrote a book in the Bible. So this is certainly, you don't have to be a Bible writer to be a prophet. By the way, it wasn't only a men thing either, a man thing. It's even women were prophets. You go to the book of Judges and you read of a very powerful prophet, man, prophetess called, called Deborah. She, the men had to sit up and listen to this lady. Let me tell you, she was very powerful because she was speaking for God. You have the prophetess Hulda, uh, another prophetess. Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses, the Bible says. Philip the evangelist. So this wasn't limited to men to be a prophet. God could speak through anybody if he chose. So how do we know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet then? What's the way that we can know that? Because it becomes very important. Well, let's begin by talking about a counterfeit. If you are to be an expert on finding counterfeit notes, the best way to find out what is a counterfeit note is to know the genuine so well that you'll easily be able to detect the counterfeit. You know the genuine inside out, all the bits and pieces and how it's put together, hold it up to the light and so on. You know the genuine so well, you'll detect the counterfeit. You don't have to study all the counterfeits, just study the genuine and you'll be able to detect those. So let's have a look at the genuine prophet gear. What, what does it mean? What are the tests of a genuine prophet? And we'll be able to detect the phony. Number one, a genuine prophet must have a batting average of 100%. He has prophetic accuracy. Jeremiah is talking. As for the prophet who prophesies, who makes some prediction of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So first of all, does the prophet's predictions come true? That's the first test. By the way, this is how you know Nostradamus is not a true prophet of God. He might be a prophet, but he's not God's prophet. He might be a psychic, but he's not a psychic for God, if we could put it that way. There's a couple of reasons we know. First of all, Nostradamus was an astrologer. The Bible forbids astrology. The Bible says this is not true. So God's not going to give, uh, speak through a man who practices astrology like that. Secondly, Nostradamus made some predictions about the end of the world. This is the prediction. We saw this, I think, earlier. 
The year 1999, seven months from the sky, there will come a great king of terror, one of his quatrains or four-line rhymes. Well, that's gone long ago. So Nostradamus is not a true prophet. That's how you know. You don't have to, you don't have to be a, an expert on Nostradamus. Just know the Bible and you'll know this is not true. Another one is Jean Dixon. She had a batting average of between 30 to 60%, they reckon. But she also not only predicted the, John, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the suicide of Marilyn Monroe, she also predicted that, the, that China would plunge the world into World War III in about 1953. Wrong. We're still here. Never had a third world war yet. So she's not a true prophet. That's how we know if we apply that simple test. The average leading psychic's batting average is 16%. So don't get too excited about people today who make predictions. If you really carefully study all their predictions, sooner or later, for most of them, you'll find out they get it wrong. Therefore, they're not true prophets of God. It's just that clear. Now, here's a, here's a religious prophet who's a very famous one in the Christian world today. Probably some of you have seen him on TV, Kenneth Copeland. He said, Copeland claimed that COVID-19 was finished in the United States and over and that the United States was now healed and well again. I beg your pardon? Notice what he said that in 2020, way before they lost so many people during that crisis. This man, please forgive me, I'm not being critical, he's a false prophet because his prediction did not come true. So we, we, we don't have to, we don't have to, uh, we're not being critical, but Jesus said, test them. That was his, his idea. Check up on what they predict and does it happen? And if it doesn't happen, forget it. It's not a true prophet. Number two, biblical faithfulness, the Bible says. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign of the wonder comes to pass. So here we go. He's made some amazing predictions even and it really happens. Good. There's possibility he's a true prophet, but notice, continue on. And the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. In other words, even if he does some supernatural sign or wonder, even if he makes a prediction that happens, but if he speaks against this book, forget it. He's not a true prophet. Unless he speaks according to God's word. If he tells you to follow another God, clearly this is not right. That's what Moses is saying. So does he follow God's word. Third test is, does he exalt Jesus? Does he lift Jesus Christ up? Notice what the Bible says. Peter is talking. He's talking of the prophets in the past. He says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, even in the Old Testament, he's saying, the Spirit of Christ was in, the Holy Spirit was impressing them, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Do you see what he's saying? Even those Old Testament prophets, they pointed to Jesus. That was their focus. They pointed to the Savior. Any prophet who doesn't really turn people to Jesus and point them to, he's not a true prophet. 
A true prophet will exalt Jesus Christ. Number four, a true prophet will be commandment keeping. Isaiah is talking about supernatural signs and wonders by some of the psychics in his day, in the Old Testament time. It says to the law, that means to the commandments of God, to the testimony, to the scriptures, to God's word. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Any prophet, any preacher who says God's commandments are done away with at the cross, he's a false prophet. You just know it because the Bible says they will speak according to the law and to the testimony. That's a true prophet. It's a very good and a very important test today in light of what we saw about Revelation and the crisis over the Ten Commandments. Remember, the crisis begins and ends with a call to keep the commandments of God. Number five, spiritual fruitage. Beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. What's their life like? Do they live a godly, good life? What's going on in that space is a very important test of, Bible pro of, a, of a prophet. So here are the tests of a true prophet. One, prophetic accuracy. Number two, we saw biblical faithfulness. Number three, exalts Jesus Christ. Four, commandment keeping. And five, he leads a good life. He's not a hypocrite. Not saying one thing and doing another, in other words. Now, Christ promised the prophetic gift in the end time specifically. I want you to notice what the Bible says. We go to this final battle for global control or worship or allegiance that we've been looking at with these three beasts and these three angels. I want you to notice what it says, something we have not yet examined. The dragon, we've seen this bit, was enraged. He's furious with the woman, God's people we saw, and he went to make war with the rest or the remnant of her offspring who keep the commandments of God, that is, they love God and they keep his commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We've not looked at that phrase, the testimony of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, let's notice what it means. We go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And let me just give you the background. John sees a, a mighty angel and naturally he's overcome and he falls down to worship the angel. Now hear what the angel says. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, not me, is what he's saying. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. So here he defines what the testimony of Jesus Christ is. It's the spirit of prophecy. Now notice what he said here. Who's got the spirit of prophecy? He says, your brothers. So who are John's brothers who have the testimony or the spirit of prophecy? Who are the brothers that John is talking about? Well, we go to Revelation again, and John does the same thing. He sees this mighty angel, and he bows down to worship, and the angel says, whoa, hold on, John, don't do that. Notice what he says. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the who? The prophets. So when John says his brothers have the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy, he's saying the prophets, 
That's my brothers. The prophets have the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy. Prophets are the ones who have that. Now, by the way, why would we'd expect the prophets to do that? Because what do they do? They testify of Jesus. We just read a moment ago. They point to Jesus. So they have the testimony of Jesus. Their writings point to Jesus, the brothers, the prophets. So we could write this statement this way now. The dragon was enraged or angry with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which means the Spirit's gift of prophecy. Very simple, just by examining Revelation. Isn't it beautiful how Revelation explains itself? This is one of the marvelous things about the Bible. We don't have to guess or make it up. We just go to the Bible and it explains itself. Now, we should expect God to send the prophetic gift in the end times. Because all through history, God has sent prophets at critical times. And this is, the, this is the, the final climax of the great battle. For example, when God was about to destroy the world with a flood, he sent a prophet by the name of who? Noah. When God was about to raise up a people to be his special people to take the message of God's love to the world, he raised up a prophet called Abraham. He was a prophet. He's the father of Israel. Who they, their task was to bring God's love to the rest of the world. They failed, we know, but God raised up a prophet. When God's people were turning away from the commandments of God and worshipping Baal and all those terrible things they did in the Old Testament, God raised up prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. That's when you go to the Old Testament, that's who these guys were. Hosea. Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all prophets sent to Israel to bring them back because they're going down the gurgler. They're going downhill spiritually. So God is calling them back. When God was about to send his son Jesus Christ into the world the first time, he sent a prophet called John the Baptist. The greatest events of the ages, God has sent prophets. So wouldn't we expect that when Jesus is about to come the second time, well, of course we would. God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets, says the book of Acts, since the world began. And notice what the prophet Amos says. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So we should expect this according to the Bible. All right. So the end time gift of prophecy is given to the remnant. The dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant or the rest. Of course, the rest in some translation, but it means the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, the first thing that we would call the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy is the Bible itself, right? That's the testimony of Jesus. That's the spirit of prophecy. That's the greatest example of the spirit of prophecy or the testimony of Jesus, the Bible, because of the Bible prophets. Secondly, it means specifically the book of Revelation, because John said that. Notice what it says. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw, that John saw in these revelations, these visions. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. 
So specifically, the book of Revelation was also signaled out. That's why the dragon was angry with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of a seed who keep the commandments of God and share the book of Revelation, we could say. If the end time people are not sharing the book of Revelation, something's wrong. So whenever you hear people say or preachers say, you can't understand the book of Revelation, don't bother. But you know that's dead wrong. Because this is the testimony of Jesus, according to John. And we need to understand it. In fact, by the way, it means revelation, which means a revealing. Finally, it also means the gift of prophecy among the end time remnant. That means the end time people will see and have the gift of prophecy among their midst. How do we know that? We get that from the book of Joel. Joel is looking out into our day. It shall come to pass afterwards, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, both men and women, you notice here, shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. When? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. We should expect to see this. God said it would be the gift of prophecy. So God promises the gift of prophecy to the end time remnant people of God. We saw that last week. God is doing marvelous things. Remember the remnant of Bible prophecy it was a movement that God raised up prophetically. We saw from Revelation and from Daniel. We noticed that last week. So we would expect to see the end time gift of prophecy. Why? To prepare his children for Christ's soon return. Just like John the Baptist was sent to prepare people of Israel for Christ's first coming to this world. Now I want to share with you about a person who I believe was one of the people who have this gift of prophecy. A person by the name of Ellen G. White. Let me talk about her for just a moment. Give you a little bit of history on her. This woman was a Methodist at first. She grew up as a Methodist and uh, when she was about nine years of age, she's coming home from school one day when one of the girls from her school got really angry at, these, at, at her and her sisters and so on and threw a rock. And as she threw the rock, Ellen turned around to see where she was coming and the stone smashed right into her, her nose and, and did a lot of damage. She was not able to do any more formal schooling after that. From there on, from nine years of age, any education she got was at home, self-taught, self-reading, and she did a lot of reading as well. So that was her background. When she got to the age of 17 years of age, she was given her first vision, uh, a dream, a vision that she was given. Now, she had 2,000 visions during the rest of her life. Now, many of these things that took place when she was in vision, especially in the early times, supernatural things happen. Things you could not, you have to say, this is, this is, this is, this is not normal. It's super normal or supernatural. For example, there were times when she would be in vision for up to two hours at least, and she didn't breathe during the two hours. In fact, a doctor heard about this and he thought, this is crazy, this is nuts. Nobody cannot breathe for two hours and still be living at the end of it. <laughs> so he came with his candle and his mirror and so on. And when she was in vision, he heard it, raced down, held the mirror in front of her, the candle. No breath was coming out. He ran out of there. He said, this is crazy, I'm out of here. She also was known to hold up one of these big family Bibles 
in her hand while she's in vision, looking over there, and she's quoting scriptures, and, and she's, she's turning without looking to the very pages in the Bible and pointing to the finger on those very passages that she's, she's hearing about and just pointing to them. Now, that doesn't mean it's coming from God. That just says something's going on here that we better find out, is it coming from God or the devil, right? Just because something's supernatural doesn't mean it's coming from God. So we would need to apply the test to her, which we'll do in a moment. Very supernatural things happen to her during her visions. Now, this lady wrote over 50 books. In fact, she's the most prolific writer among women for the whole of the world's history. Let me share with you a statement. This is a man who wrote about her. He's not one of her faith, but he just wrote about this woman. This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated because of that accident, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. So she was a prolific writer indeed. That's George Wharton James in his book, California Romantic and Beautiful. To be continued. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for His own. But I know.
Academy sang, I Know Whom I Have Believed. And coming up next, Clearly Hins will sing, It Is Faith. In my younger years, I wondered what it means to walk with God as in a did. I looked for Jesus in every place to follow him all the way but he was not in sight for he is in my heart it is faith that makes me see my savior who died at
compiled by Remnant Publications. The book, Get Ready for a Miracle, recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Harold Harker. This story is entitled, The Fiery Furnace. Psalm 107, 19-21 reads, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. When I lived in Belize, it was still called British Honduras. We moved there in 1975 to help build a hospital in a little town called Cayo. After completing the hospital, we moved down to a smaller town called Benque Viejo, next to the Guatemalan border, where my dad purchased 125 acres of land on the outskirts of town. I was almost 13 at the time, so my dad asked me if I wanted to earn some money. Obviously I did. So he bought me a nice horse along with a single bottom plough, a harrow and a cart from the Hutterites that lived nearby. He agreed to pay me the same wage as any grown man was earning in town, working as a carpenter or a skilled tradesman, which was 25 cents an hour. Whoopee! I was making real money. Two bucks a day, Belizean. One US dollar. I took my horse and ploughed a few acres and planted everything, tomatoes, carrots, onions, cabbage and more. I even put in a banana, an orange plantation, consisting of about 30 trees of each. Every Tuesday and Thursday for three years, I took my produce into town with my horse and cart and sold it on the street corners. My horse, whose name was Lady, was the best horse a guy could have. She was so smart that when I had finished selling on one street corner, I would tell her to go and wait at the next one until I finished talking. And she would go down the street, around the corner, and wait at the right spot till I showed up. Another little game we used to play early in the morning when I would go out to the pasture to find her was that I would see her but pretend not to. Then I would start calling her name and looking around. She would find the nearest tree, even if it was only four inches around, and stand behind it, peeking out. As I moved around, she would shuffle around behind the tree until I would turn around and say, I found you! Then she would snort and come running. I noticed that there was only white bread in the village, so I asked an old man from Guatemala to show me how to build an adobe brick oven that was fired by wood. He showed me how, and I built it. Then I went up to the Mennonite colony and purchased bran from them as they brought it in from Canada to feed their chickens. I mixed 40% bran with 60% white flour and made a nice light brown bread. Now I had bread to sell in town with my produce. All the money that came from the sale of this stuff 
went toward a new primary school that Dad was building on the property. Things were going well and the school was built. There were about 30 kids attending it and Dad had found a young American girl from California with a teaching degree who was willing to come and teach at the school. Things were great. I was ploughing the fields with my horse, going to school and baking 200 loaves of bread twice a week at four in the morning. In my spare time, I was wandering the jungle, collecting poisonous snakes for the British Army. They paid me a whopping $5 per snake, and I would find caves back in the jungle and explore them for hours on end. One Christmas, when I was almost 15, I started to like girls. I had my eye on a pretty Spanish girl in town. Late that Christmas night, I snuck out to town to go to the dance that was at the soccer field. I stayed out till four in the morning, dancing to Abba. Then I ran home to start the fire and bake the 200 loaves of bread. I had started the fire and mixed everything together by hand, as there was no electricity in those days. Then I sat down to let it rise. Well, I fell asleep, and when I woke at around 7am, the fire had almost gone out, and the bread was running over the large mixing tub. I punched the bread back down and put more wood on the fire, but it wouldn't start. I grabbed a quart of kerosene and threw it in the oven. Then I tried to light the first match, but it broke. The second one wouldn't light either. And by the time I got the third match to light, the kerosene had run down, hit the coals and started to evaporate. Yes, you know what happened next. Everything blew up, including me. The blast was so big that it blew me back more than 30 feet. When I got up, I was fried from my waist up, had no hair, no fingernails. I was in really bad shape. I thought for a moment, then grabbed the water hose and sat down with it pouring over me. I called for my mum as my dad was away in Texas. She came running and screamed when she saw me. I think it was then that I knew I was severely burned. She yelled for my older brother who was visiting us for a while and he came and put me in the truck. They covered me with wet towels and took off for the new hospital we'd helped build in Cayo. I only remember about the first two miles of the trip and then the pain set in and I went unconscious for the next five days. When I awoke, I was bandaged from my head to my waist and my eyes were taped shut because they were badly burned too. The American doctor came in and said that I had severe third degree burns and would need to be flown back to the States for skin graft treatment as soon as possible. I had a friend back in Canada when I was five whose dad had been severely burned in a mill fire. I remember what he looked like after many skin grafts. It was awful and I didn't want any. 
I asked the doctor and he said there was no way that it would heal on its own. It was too severe. They fed me through a straw for another week and then uncovered my left eye so I could see a little bit. Then I asked my mum to come and get me. She did and took me back to her house where they put up a mosquito net on the porch because I stunk quite badly. I lay there for the next four months, refusing to go back to America for skin grafts. The next day, after I returned from the hospital, many people from the village came to see me. One of the old women who came said she would get a doctor from the jungle in Guatemala to come and heal me. I thanked her and tried to smile in appreciation. After a few days, an old man showed up and said he was asked by the villagers to come and help me get better. I asked where he was from and he said, I live far in the jungle, about three days walk away, and he pointed toward Guatemala. I realised that this must be the doctor that the old lady said she would send, or as I called him, the witch doctor. He brought lots of leaves, oils and ground up powders with him. He unwrapped all my bandages and cleaned off the white burn cream that the American doctor had given my mum to put on it. It really hurt. But I knew that the people of the village had asked him to come because they really cared about me. And, in turn, I wanted to show them the same respect. I did everything the witch doctor asked, even drinking stuff that I thought might be snake oil. Yuck! He crushed the leaves and applied them and the oils directly onto the burns. He said some were to help me with the pain and others were to help with the healing of the skin. He did this every day for a week. I got immediate relief from the pain and I can tell you firsthand there is nothing worse than the pain of being burned. After a week, a strange film that looked like saran wrap appeared, which I presumed it was a thin layer of skin. He left a whole bunch of his potions with me and said, you'll be okay if you keep doing this until it's all gone. After a month, there was clearly a thin film of skin starting to grow. It was very fragile. If I bumped it, it would tear and bleed. It was about a year before I could put my shirt on and off without tearing my skin. For the next three years, if I strained to pick up something or arm wrestled my brother, the pores on my upper body would seep little drops of blood. I am glad to say that if you saw me today, you would never know I had been burned. About 10 years later, I saw the American doctor who treated me. When he saw me, he said, I heard you never received skin graft. Take your shirt off. Let me see what's happened to you. I took it off and he stood there quietly examining me. And then he said, well, there is no medical explanation for this. All I can say is, if you believe in miracles, then this is what it must be. The publisher's comment, this is one example 
of where God sends help in many different ways. In this story, God has used natural remedies to heal even though they were suggested by a man who didn't know God. A reflection associated with this story comes from Ministry of Healing, page 226. The Lord's promise, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, Mark 16, 18, is just as trustworthy now as in the days of the apostles. It presents the privilege of God's children and our faith should lay hold of all that it embraces. Christ's servants are the channel of his working and through them he desires to exercise his healing power. It is our work to present the sick and suffering to God in the arms of our faith. We should teach them to believe in the great healer. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.